Hello everybody, my name is Sadaf Suluki and I'm very happy to present to you today a paper titled Embodiment in Patients with Spinal Cord Injury Receiving Temporary Neural Implants A Qualitative Phenomenological Study into Patient Experience So before I actually dive into this topic I'd like to give you a bit of a background about my, myself because it tells a bit of a story about how the idea for this paper came about so at the moment, I'm actually an MD-PhD student in the Departments of Neuroscience and Neurosurgery in the Erasmus Medical Center in the Netherlands. This means that I have a background in medicine and neuroscience, but I've also studied philosophy. And during my time as a philosophy student, I actually encountered many different words and tools within philosophy, but especially within phenomenology, that I found especially useful when applied to the clinical practice and the neuroscientific domain I was dealing with. I had the wish to further develop these phenomenological ideas and theoretical frameworks into something that could actually be applicable to clinical practice and be of benefit to the actual patients. So this paper is one of the first efforts towards that and I'm very very happy to be able to share that with you today. So as I briefly uh, alluded to, I am a, um, also a neuroscientist working within the domain of uh, what you would call neuroengineering or neurotechnology. And as you may know, neuroengineering at the moment is quite hot. It is uh, all over uh, the internet, uh, in, in all types of media, and for a very good reason, because neuroscientists, uh, clinicians, and engineers together are very, making very, very spectacular developments within the field. Uh, this is one performed uh, by the UMC Utrecht, which is uh, a center in the Netherlands where they were actually able to use a type of brain-computer interface to help this lady with locked-in locked -in syndrome actually communicates uh, through a spelling system. Uh, similarly, this is a beautiful video from the group in Switzerland that actually makes use of spinal cord stimulators to help uh, paraplegic patients regain locomotion. And within my group, we actually recently added uh, uh, one other anatomical target to the, uh, to the field, which actually allowed us to, uh, to also uh, reinstate standing uh, functionality in uh, several patients with a, a chronic complete spinal cord injury. So actually to summarize, we can say there's a lot of exciting stuff happening at the moment with neural implants and neuroengineering in general. However, this neural implant, of which you see an example here, is of course a very particular thing. It is often placed under the skin uh, in close contact to the surface of the nervous system or sometimes even within the nervous system, so within the brain in case of deep brain uh, deep brain stimulation and of course one can wonder what is actually the status of this implant or device is it supposed to be an embodied tool will it become an embodied tool for those receiving it experimentally and eventually applying it in clinical domain or is it uh, doomed to be and stay a fremdkörper what is interesting, however, is when I dove into literature about this topic, so you could say maybe neuroethical literature in general, a lot of the topics dealing with more phenomenological or neuroethical issues in relation to neuroengineering actually touched upon very distinct subjects, such as safety of devices, uh, issues relating to justice or privacy or security, or especially in the cases of deep brain stimulation, and the role of the device in relation to personality and autonomy and whatever I could find which was more uh, body related 
uh, it seemed to focus more on the limitations or lack of possibilities for tooling cooperation than actually describing, for example, facilitators in the process. So seeing this in literature actually made me wonder um, why the human experience that um, we as researchers and, and clinicians especially know exists within the process of, of tool receival and maybe even embodiment, why the human experience is not really part of the research that's being done uh, currently. And I must say there are, of course, still some, some very valuable, although sparse, examples of this type of research, for example, by uh, Lucie Dalibert, who um, in her 2015 paper on spinal cord stimulation for chronic pain describes the human experience from the point of view of Mr. Van Houten and Mrs. Blumen. You can see some of the examples here where she actually captures beautifully some examples of uh, very contrasting examples of how an implant can be received and embodied by a patient. So knowing the current landscape of literature, uh, we formulated a set of three questions we thought would be important to answer in this respect. The first one being, what phenomenological concepts could, in theory, play a role in embodiment of neural implants? The second question is, what do patients receiving neural implants actually consider as important factors when working towards embodiment? And the idea would be that the knowledge that we gain from these two questions combined could give us an idea of how to apply this into clinical practice. So the focus of the rest of my talk will be on this second question, the factors that patients themselves consider important. However, for the idea to give you a bit of a background, I'd like to briefly state um, what type of effort we've done to answer the first question so far. So we've partially attempted to answer this in one of our papers, Accepted in Neuroethics, where we actually drew uh, inspiration from the work of Jenny Slotman in Our Strange Body, and looked for factors that seem to facilitate embodiment for medical tools in general, applying them to neurotechnologies in particular. So the idea would be that we're working towards embodiment, saying that embodiment is exactly the same or close to being able to incorporate a tool such as a neural implant into the body schema of the patient. So we are looking for factors that can actually facilitate this. And a major factor that, that actually is involved in this is the concept that is known to many of us, which is transparency. The idea that the tool is actually able to, in a way, disappear from the foreground of our attention and become part, settle into the body schema. So what are factors that are facilitators for transparency in neural implants in particular? Well, partially based on what Yanni Slotman tells us, the first one is very obviously functionality. If a tool doesn't work or doesn't function the w in the way that it is supposed to work or uh, in a way that it is promised to work during implantation, it is of course difficult to consider that tool transparent. The second factor is one that is very particular to uh, neural implants and especially the type of spinal cord implants that I deal with for spinal cord injury and regain of locomotion and standing function. And that is the concept of sensory motor feedback or maybe sensory aspects in general. So one of the important reasons why, for example, we're able to walk uh, quite effortlessly without many uh, uh, conscious thoughts going into that process is because we have sensory feedback of our locomotion. We know when our feet touch the ground, when they actually uh, hit an uneven surface, and we're able to correct for mistakes and to have this process continue going smoothly without us having to focus on this process. 
So the idea would be for a tool to truly become transparent, it needs to have the sensory feedback uh, component uh, as is uh, normal in the physiological state because it allows it to actually disappear into the background and uh, it actually in a way also allows for a reduction in the cognitive load. The final concept that we considered is that of effective tolerance, which in a way could also be uh, reformulated as emotional aspects. This is quite a difficult topic because it seems to be in a way a catch-all term where a lot of uh, subtopics or unknown factors could be placed together. The idea would be that even a functional and completely sensory motor feedback giving device could lead to a non-embodiment or a difficulty with incorporation in this, into the body schema of a patient. And what we describe in neuroethics, and I won't go into that too further now, or too much now, is the idea that this effective tolerance is very much related to body image. So knowing that this is a bit of the framework that we have in mind when starting our, our study into the factors that patients themselves consider important, I'd like to give you finally an overview of the, uh, the actual research uh, in which we embedded these interviews. So this was an experiment performed by myself and my group, which was a five-day experiment where uh, patients with a complete chronic spinal cord injury received these types of implants, as can, see, as can be seen in C. These are implants that are placed over part of the spinal cord. Um, they were in this study in particular externalized because these were just temporary implants placed for a total of five days with the aim of evoking bilateral strong muscle contractions around the knee, as you can see in B, and which were actually used to test the ability of a patient to come to a standing position during the stimulation. So we performed interviews at two moments, right before they actually received the implants, and right after they actually finished the study and the implants were removed. As I said, these were temporary implants. And what we did was actually discuss several topics on both interview one and interview two days. So what we first of all did was try to get an idea of the bodily experience that our patients had post spinal cord injury and how they might have uh, changed their attitudes towards their bodily experience after having gone through the experimental process. We were also interested, and this is maybe a bit of a difficult point because it's perhaps more cognitively focused rather than really focusing on lived experience or phenomenological aspects but we also wanted to see what are their attitudes towards tools in general using several statements such as a donor heart can become part of your body and finally and I think most importantly and I'll try to focus on that most today is what type of attitudes did our patients have towards the experimental neuroimplant how did they discuss this uh, their expectations how they do they talk about the implant and the possibility of actual embodiment and how did this change after having gone through the experimental process. So next I will be discussing some of the preliminary observations that we made looking at the transcripts of these two interviews for a total of five patients that also went through the clinical uh, study that I discussed before. In these preliminary observations we're looking for uh, confirmations or contradictions of the theoretical framework that I discussed previously so one of the first key observations that we made, and I'm giving you quotes from our patients throughout each of these results, uh, functionality was always interpreted close in close relation to a functional lack that these patients described or uh, experienced, and the necessity to actually fill that lack. 
although patients' answers varied when asked which functionality would have priorities. Standing or walking was surprisingly not a strong contender. Rather, patients preferred in their eyes more realistic and vital regains of functionality, including being freed of spasticity and chronic pain, as well as being able to control their own bladder and bowel. What is more, functionality was often also formulated in its negative form. In other words, patients shared that the absence of side effects or other limiting factors would be necessary for transparency and ultimately embodiment. You can see that in the second quote that I'm showing you here, it should make my life easier, says patient one in interview one. Right? Like having better eyesight. It should not be annoying or making you feel that it is in your way. The second observation that we made considered the theme of uh, sensory motor feedback, which we should maybe even call sensory involvement in general, because this took many different shapes during the interview. Sensory aspects were actually not only interpreted in terms of proprioception. Several patients uh, explained the absence of dermal or tactile sensations, especially as an enormous lack in everyday life. You can see that here in the example of patient 2, interview 1, the top quote. Uh, where he describes that the feeling that he used to have, and he means without the dermal sensations, sensations on his skin, they were very important for him, and he is missing them enormously throughout his everyday life. Other patients who did have some remaining sensory uh, information going through, uh, in terms of uh, phantom pains or tinglings, which we call paresthesias, these patients explained that it was actually their residual sensations, these, for example, tinglings, that gave them the idea that their lower limbs were there and part of their body in the first place. We could even say that, or even wonder, whether sensory experiences are not really part of a regain of functionality in general anyway. However, especially if we look, for example, at the top quote, sensations, sensory aspects seem to also carry an emotional load, so perhaps they should better fit under the effective tolerance. However, as we had said, the topic of effective tolerance um, was a difficult one, as it has the um, potential to become a catch-all term. So one of the things that we also did was our ability to perhaps further unravel uh, the more black box term of effective tolerance. Effective tolerance tells us that it contains aspects related to feelings or emotions. And during the interviews that we conducted, three topics seemed to fuel the default feelings of our patients towards embodiment of the actual neural implant. Their attitudes towards what counts as natural, firstly. Secondly, their attitude towards technology. And third, their previous experiences with tools that they could use as a comparative case to the current situation of receiving the neural implant. So I've given you some examples of that here. So the top quote uh, is from patient three in interview two, where he, where he says, sure, I can accept an implant, but again, we were all born in a normal healthy body and that is, that is the perfect ac acceptance. Of course, that's a very strong emotional standpoint, which which he, it's his default mo mode, which, which he started this whole process bit different is the answer of patient one in interview one, where he gives us a bit of an idea of what he thinks of technology and the dependability of technology. He says, for example, with a pacemaker you're dealing with a box-shaped device, a box can malfunction. I find that more likely than if the heart, so a natural heart, suddenly stops. And the final quote is an example of how a patient used a previous tool that he had very good experience with 
as a comparative case to argue for how the embodiment process would go with his neuroimplant. You know what it is? I have a tube and he's talking about a suprapubic catheter, which, which he's actually able to uh, clear his urine. Um, I have a tube in my stomach and also that in the beginning I found weird and yet now it is part of my body. I can pee with it. It is part of my body because it takes over a certain function for me and gives me more stability. And he uses this explanation to explain to me later on that he expects that he will feel the same about any neural implant that will be implanted. So the fourth preliminary observation that I'd like to share with you is perhaps the most overarching one as it actually tells us to take a bit more perspective on the problem at hand. What we might have forgotten or might have not considered enough in the previous theoretical framework that I discussed is the involvement and the transparency and lack thereof, especially of the body in disease in this case, or the injured body. Uh, most of the answers that we use for this preliminary observation within the interviews brought to light the importance of the bodily experience of the patient in relation to their injury. Many of the patients that we, we uh, interviewed explained their post-injury experience as one in which they had to be actively aware of their body. Um, for example, when wanting to prevent wounds or ulcers, but also in terms of understanding the signs of their bodies, you could say, for themselves, as well as being able to communicate these signs to others. This is the example that I show here in the top quote of patient 5, interview 1, where he tells us that he is paying much more attention to symptoms of, in his case, bladder infection. He needs to, what he says, listen to his own body. He says he's pretty good at that, but he needs to control his body in a different way now and especially communicate about it to people around him. The injured body as such enters at the forefront of the patient's awareness and loses its usual self-evident nature. And of course, this is, this is also not unfamiliar within our field, but it's important to be aware of this, I think, within this particular question. Because what our patients made clear is that the level of transparency of the injured body can have an actual influence on the level of transparency that might be achieved with the implant, at least as explained by them. Some patients, for example, um, explained their injury as something alien because it was not natural and not the way their mother had brought them into the world. And they explained the implant in similar terms, something that could be nothing more than something alien. Other patients argued differently and mentioned how they could accept their injury and how they had learned to live in a similar way with their new body. To them, um, the functional implant was a welcome addition. So the final preliminary observation that I'd like to share with you is one that is mostly inspired by an answer of patient 2 in interview 1, where um, when discussing uh, the potential ability to uh, embody a neural implant and especially the implant he was about to receive in the experimental setting he answered by introducing the concept of switch moments which um, I would like to call or translate to oscillations. Um, our scheme was lacking a clear reference to the variability and oscillation nature of what is an embodiment process although this is also not an unfamiliar topic to the field. Uh, it is a continuous, non-binary, non-static process from one end of the spectrum, being, for example, a non-incorporated implant, to the other side of the spectrum, a completely incorporated implant, if something like that exists. A patient's position on that spectrum, just as patient 2 here explains, can differ based on seemingly trivial events, and patient 2 mentions some of them, 
being reminded by your environment, passing the mirror, waking up in a bad mood, or watching a sci-fi movie. These oscillations can happen as much as multiple times a day or can be extremely steady throughout the embodiment process. It is important to recognize and emphasize this phenomenon in the scheme, but it is also important to try to act accordingly. And with that I mean within the clinical domain. And I'll try to touch upon that uh, in a second. So before moving on to the final discussion, I'd like to show you here a bit of an update of the scheme. And again, this is just based on the preliminary observations that we made. And all the additions are marked uh, in the red boxes. So I'm talking about preliminary observations so far mostly because I'm trying to reinterpret the data that we have so far in newer themes, especially based on the um, focus that we found uh, from the patients on their actual diseased body or the injured body mostly. And one of the things that I'm doing currently is trying to reinterpret the data within themes of transparency, absence, and disappearance, especially in relation to, uh, uh, as I said, the injured body. So finally, I'd like to discuss the topic of the clinical application that we mentioned at the beginning of the talk. So we said that we would like to use the theoretical framework, as well as any of the additions that we might add to the framework based on the qualitative interviews as a stepping stone towards uh, a clinical application or adding uh, beneficial factors to the clinical process of uh, neural implant embodiment. And to give you an idea of what types of application we're thinking about, I'd like to discuss the following. So what we think would facilitate this step from theoretical framework to clinical application is considering embodiment as much as a part of the healing process as any other biological parameter requiring diagnostics. So in a previous paper we have called this the transparency diagnosis. The idea would be that the transparency diagnosis aims to determine the patient's current as well as the desired level of embodiment, perhaps in a similar way as we showed today through interviews or in-depth intake conversations between the physician and the patient. Not with the aim to freeze a patient's experience of embodiment in time, because in fact, as we discussed today as well, this is a fluid concept uh, which has switch moments or oscillations, but rather to allow for the two-sided reflection that is required to stay as open-minded and fluid throughout the embodiment process as the concept itself is. Diagnosing incorporation, embodiment or transparency should be as much part of our repertoire as the diagnostic process of the underlying diseases already is. So with this type of clinical perspective in mind, I'd like to finish my talk and thank you very much for uh, your attention. I'd like to show you a brief overview of the references I used in this talk in case you're interested. And finally, I'd like to invite you, in case you have questions, but especially if you have any feedback for me on any of the, the topics I discussed here, to email me on either of the two email addresses displayed here. And I'd be very happy to answer either questions, or uh, I'm very much looking forward to any of the feedback you might have for me. Thank you very much.